Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. I hope you're doing well. Today, I want to actually talk about you. I want to talk about finding happiness during our struggles, during difficult times, and in particular, our kids who are struggling with anxiety or OCD. But I hope that you find that this episode is really just about a perspective in life in general, that we're all going to hit difficult times, difficult chapters in our lives. And does it rob us entirely of happiness? And also how to accept the difficult times and not just feel bad that you are not happy. (laughs) Does that make sense? We'll talk all about it and it will make sense by the end of this episode. But before we dive in, I would like to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They are available in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. Okay, so let's talk about this happiness. I think so many parents who are in my AT parenting community have just really sad stories, really overwhelming situations. Not everybody. It's a really great group of eclectic situations because we have people who, you know, have minor issues but are being proactive. We have people who are really in crisis. We have people with little toddlers, and we have people with young adults. And so it's really just this great array of different people, different situations and different acuities, which I think is really helpful because we can all help each other with different experiences and situations. But sometimes, especially when we bring in new members, because I open the doors to the AT parenting community about every three months, you know, sometimes people are in crisis, they've been waiting to get in and the situation is dire. Their child or their teenager is not able to really leave the house, sometimes not even able to leave the bedroom. And all of us define difficult in different ways. And so to me, that just seems objectively difficult. (laughs) You know, like I read it and I go, oh my gosh, that's really, really hard. But I think it is also important to not compare ourselves and what someone else perceives as difficult. And sometimes I see that with parents where they'll say, oh, I just don't have a reason to complain because you know some of you have it so much worse than we do. And I have learned through my life and through being a therapist and seeing, you know, being a therapist is interesting because you see people at their hardest times and what they deem hard as well. And before being a therapist, I was um, in foster care. I did foster care licensing and I did adoption home studies. I was in that whole world before that. And I did infant and toddler mental health. I'm old (laughs) and I have had many lifetimes of different types of experiences. And it always fascinated me with the foster kids I worked with, how objectively some of them had been through so much. And you're like, how can you even be standing I read your file and oh my gosh, the things that you went through and they were so resilient and their ability to function was really, really good. And then, you know, as I had a private practice, I might meet someone who had, you know, on the surface, things were not nearly as hard as 
being burned, you know, on a daily basis or something really horrific. But yet that person struggled just as much, or I would say sometimes even more than some of those cases that I dealt with. And I feel like difficult, quote unquote, is subjective. And that is okay because we don't all experience our struggles in the same way. And so the first thing I want to start with is do not compare yourself and your difficult times with somebody else's difficult time because it's not it's not an objective thing. It's subjective and it also has to do with our coping skills, what things trigger us, our own mental health, our own childhood issues, the narrative and story that we are weaving into what is happening, what it means on a more significant level, like where I'm taking this difficult time in my head. And so I think it's really important to accept and acknowledge when you are feeling overwhelmed and you're feeling like this for me is a difficult time. It doesn't matter if you're like, oh, but she had it so much worse. It doesn't matter because your struggles are valid and it doesn't matter what they are. If you are struggling, that's valid because it's being, it's difficult. (laughs) I think you get what I'm saying. I think it's just an important preface before we dive into this, because as I talk about this, I don't want you to gauge what is difficult versus, you know, what is not difficult for somebody else, because we are all coming with our own issues. So the first thing I want to talk about, or I want you to think about as we dive into this topic is your happiness or your ability to be content interconnected with your child's mental health. And so what I mean is if your child's not doing well, you're not doing well. If your child is doing well, you're doing well. Are you like symbiotic? And some of you who are probably symbiotic (laughs) might say, well, who wouldn't be? I mean, if you're a mom or you're a dad, like, yeah, your child's mental health is, is directly connected to you. And yes, yes, it is. But are they interconnected where one goes up, the other one goes up, one goes down, the other goes down. And some of it has to do with just our, our connectedness. Some of it has to do with us being sensitive people in and of itself. You know, like we, some of us are empaths or super sensitive or highly sensitive people, HS, HSPs, and we soak up other people's emotions in general. And of course, we're going to soak up our kids' emotions. Some of us are codependent, you know, and, and enmeshed in people that are close to us. And maybe we were like that with our parent and now we're like that with our partner or now we're like that with our kids. And that, that, that step, that's not a child parent issue. That's a relationship connectedness. Does that make sense? Some of us have anxious attachments. Some of us have avoidant attachments. Some of us have secure attachments and that plays into how we connect with our kids as well. And so when I say interconnected with your child's mental health, it just means that you have no control over your happiness. And I guess we need to define happiness as well, but you're not having pockets of contentment because as long as your child is struggling, you cannot find any peace. And that's not a healthy way to be. It may not be something that you feel like you can control. And we're going to talk about that in this episode, but we don't want to be so interconnected with our kids' mental health journey that we are not on our own journey. and. In life, we are on our own journey. Our kids are on their own mental health journey. And to not be radically interconnected to the point where you can't find contentment separate from your child finding contentment um, 
is I forgot what I was actually going to say. <laughs> Isn't that scary when you're halfway through a sentence and you're like, wait, where was I going with that? I had no idea. I just like completely left. It's very scary. <laughs> but it is, it can seem like that is a healthy thing, but it actually isn't healthy for you or your child because to, oh, I know what I was going to say to, to not be interconnected in that kind of a mesh sort of way. Doesn't mean that you don't care. And a lot of people who are in that situation, and this might be you too, might think, well, to be, and I've talked about this in the past in other episodes, to be lovingly detached. This is a bit of a different topic than that one, but that is a good episode to check out as well. Let me look up what that episode number is for you. Okay. That is episode 249, how to lovingly detach from our kids. And that's actually a really great episode to maybe piggyback on this episode. So if you want to dive deeper on that, that would be a great one to check out as well. But that's not what this one is about. But a lot of times parents will say that I don't want to not feel, you know, I don't want to be insensitive. I don't want to not care. And those are not synonymous with pulling back and not being interconnected. Connected is different than being interconnected or being enmeshed to the point where what goes up, you go up, what goes down, you go down. And, and you can't really be a rock for your child when you are not separate from your child and their ability to function. And so our job as parents, and this may not automatically happen, so we have to do the work for this to happen, is to be the rock and be the anchor for our kids that are bobbing up and down. And that doesn't mean to fake it. It means how do I get to that point where I can be the anchor for my child, that I am anchored and I am even keel and my child can be dysregulated. My child can be really struggling in their journey with mental health. And my journey with mental health and my journey with my life is still okay. Sometimes I think we have We don't know how to do that. Sometimes there's a guilt around that. Like, I can't be happy if my child is struggling right now because that's selfish. And it's not because, well, I'm going to go into this whole episode. I'm going to go into like how that really actually does help our kids as well. I do talk a little bit about this in my free series on self care, which will be coming back out. I do it twice a year, and the next one will be in August. And so just stay tuned for that. Make sure you're on my email list and you'll hear about it. If you haven't taken it before, but we do talk about this in that free series where there are, there are things called mirror neurons. And so that actually works both ways. When I am picking up on my child's anxiety and I am feeling overwhelmed and I am feeling like this journey is too heavy and too hard, my mirror neurons, like easier said than done on that one is being reflected. And it's like, it's almost like it's physiologically contagious. You know, moods are contagious. And I really, I can feel that in my house. I used to feel that with my husband. Like he really picked up on moods and felt like he was kind of an empath. And if we were happy, he would be happy. If we were just walking in line and someone was laughing, I would see him and he'd be smiling because he's like listening to their conversation and he's feeling the happiness. So some of us are much more sensitive to picking up on people's emotions. Maybe we have stronger mirror neurons, who knows? But it also goes the other way where like, so we can impact our kids, but our kids can impact us. And so you may not realize that you're picking up on your child's hopelessness and your child's mental health struggles and that you have to actually do some work to separate because those mirror neurons are working in the other direction as well. You know, it's not just one direction. So those things can help, but I think the most important aspect of this is just quality of life. 
that our kids are not going to get better overnight. That typically with anxiety and OCD, it is, it's a journey. It is just a scoop of mashed potatoes on the side dish of parenting that is now added to your plate. And it doesn't feel like a side dish. It feels like the plate just broke. Somebody grabbed the plate and threw it across the room. (laughs) That's what it can feel like, especially if it's like sudden onset, it can feel that way. But it's important to remember. And I think sometimes I can tell the energy coming through, especially with the new members that come into the AT parenting community, there's this urgency. I can tell which parents are anxious right from the get-go when I start to interact with them because with those parents, and it's not their fault because the apple doesn't often fall far from the tree with some parents. And it's a really anxiety producing journey, but there's this urgency of, we need to fix this. We need to fix this right away. The hard thing to accept, but the reality is for most of us, it's just like, it's an, it's another thing that we have to slowly build our kids tools with. It kind of reminds me, and I, I know I equate a lot of times anxiety and OCD to my daughter being diagnosed with celiac. And the reason why I do that is one, I feel like kind of like, you know, those babies that have swam from like birth and they're just like always swimming. I feel like kind of one of those babies. Like I was doing behavior modification and cognitive behavioral therapy when I was playing house and playing school with my sister who was four years younger than me. And I must've been like nine at the time. I don't even know how I knew that. It's just like, so this stuff doesn't overwhelm me because honestly, it is like in my DNA. I feel like I was born to do this. It's just, it's like treading water for me. It's super. And so when my kids have these issues, it's upsetting. It's disappointing. But to be honest with you, it's never been a hundred percent overwhelming for me because it's an area that I feel really competent in. And I mean, there was a time when my son wasn't eating and we were going to have to get him G-tubed. And I felt there are times with my son where I feel overwhelmed because you add the pandas pans mystery element. And even with pandas and pans, it's like, it's not directly pandas and pans. Like they were like, well, you know, he kind of has like, you know, and it's showing up in a different way. I mean, this is, this episode is not about him, but I feel like there's something more physiological with him and none of the approaches to treat pandas and pans have helped him. We haven't done any aggressive approaches, but it's like how to help him. So there is an overwhelm with that because that's not, I don't feel competent because nobody's competent really in that area to the level that they should be, but we'll improve eventually. But when my daughter was diagnosed with celiac, I feel like I could relate to parents who are brand new to a diagnosis because that's how I felt with celiac. I felt like we didn't have a gluten-free diet in my house. Gluten-free wasn't a thing that I even knew. I'm not like good with nutrition as far as like, you know, not having, eliminating something, you know, just stuff like that was overwhelming. And so get diagnosed and then instantly it's like, you can't have a contaminated kitchen and you have to know how to eat out and you have to like look at medicines and creams and you have to, it was like a lot. And I imagine that that's what that feels like for parents who are newly diagnosed. Their kids are newly diagnosed with anxiety or OCD. I would say especially OCD because OCD is so foreign that it's just, it can seem bizarre. Like all of a sudden your child is, you know, confessing a million times a day or they're washing a million times a day. Like it just can seem really scary and overwhelming. And so I do get that. But just like with celiac, I had to, you know, absorb a lot of information, but I couldn't fix it. Like I wasn't going to be able to ever get her to 
be able to manage and digest gluten. It was like, I had to learn skills and teach her skills on how to navigate this new journey that she was on and not get sucked in and overwhelmed by it to the point where I got depressed and overwhelmed. And so did she, even though that's a different journey. I think it's similar in the sense that, and it's, I mean, anxiety and OCD is actually more hopeful than the celiac story because our kids can be symptom-free for periods of time, a lot of periods of time. And the more they build their skills, the better they do. And the smaller the bumps are typically as they progress. And so there is actually more hope because I I can't teach your body to process gluten in a way that's not going to be harmful for her. Maybe one day there'll be a pill. There's some, some whispers about that. But with anxiety and OCD, it is a, it's a lifelong journey too, because once that genetic seed is sprouted or that environmental stressor, or um, if it's pandas or pans, that infection or whatever triggers that initial inflammation or genetic seed, whatever it may be. And I do feel, I do strongly believe that it's different origins for different people. I think there's a lot of people with autoimmune issues, a lot of people who get infections, And there is that genetic predisposition as well. And it's a chicken or the egg, you know, with autoimmune issues and genetics. But having said that, I feel like once that seed is sprouted, however it got sprouted, it's like a bell that can't be unrung. It's, it's, it's there. Those neural pathways are growing. They're reinforcing the OCD or the anxiety. And our kids from then on will periodically struggle with those things. And we're going to have to build up their skills, their knowledge. It's like educating them. Just like with my daughter, Silly, I got to educate her on like what she can eat. Hey, did you know that soy sauce actually has gluten in it? Did you know that most syrups have gluten in it? Like you're, it's a learning curve. Just like, hey, do you know that OCD can show up this way? It can show up that way. It's the education piece. And that that's a little slow going at first. And then it's like, um, these are the things that we need to not do right? These are the things that are actually growing your anxiety or OCD. So I'm learning what not to do. And so there is, you. it is not a sprint. I say this all the time. It is not a sprint. It is a marathon and it is slow and it's a lifelong. And, and I don't say this to be more overwhelming. I say this because if you have the right mindset, you'll see why happiness, finding happiness now and not waiting for difficult times to disappear is really key because there will be rough times and there'll be easy times. And it's very possible there'll be easy times for a very long period of time. But from now on, or it has been already, it's not just starting for you, perhaps. It's part of your parenting plate. It's now part of your parenting plate. Just like if you had a child that has some chronic illness like diabetes or asthma, it's another thing that you're managing and teaching. Now, sometimes our kids are in crisis mode. And so that's overwhelming for that period of time. But it is important to not have that mentality of once this gets better, then we can all go back to being the family that we were before. Because just like other things that shape your family and change your family, anxiety and OCD does that too. And to have that mentality of we're going to wait until everything gets better to live again, it's robbing you of the time that you have right now. So after the break, I want to talk about what does it look like to find happiness during difficult times? And kind of just kind of go through some ways that that I have done that during our difficult times. And I do feel like this episode can go way above and beyond anxiety and OCD because we all hit really difficult times in our lives. And whether it's a sudden death, like that's what happened in my family, like just suddenly losing my husband 
that was a very dark, difficult time that we're still in at times. And that also is very similar to anxiety and OCD in that the grief journey, and I know some people disagree, but I had, I had posted something on, I think it was a YouTube short. And I talked about grief being something that you learn to, I can't remember what the short was on, but it was something like how like grief, like you learn to dance with grief throughout your life, but you don't get rid of grief. And somebody, you know, YouTube and some obnoxious people, somebody had written something like, this is terrible. Or like, you should like, I can't remember exactly what the person said, but I remember it bothered me. It was something like people do get over grief and people do get over trauma. And that's absolutely not true. And I was like, well, I wonder if you ever lost a child or I wonder if you ever lost a spouse in, in the prime of their life, because I'd love for you to tell a young widow or a mother or father who lost a child that they're going to get over their grief. And it's funny because like, I think with anxiety and OCD, there are things that like bother us when people say, oh, I'm so OCD or everybody's a little anxious. There's like things that kind of are like fingers on a chalkboard for those of us that are in the OCD world or have kids with OCD, especially when people say, oh, I'm so OCD or I have a little OCD or I'm so OCD about that. Like it's almost like, er, right? Although somebody actually made a comment about that too one time. They're like, people can be a little OCD. I was like, okay, you totally missed my point. It's not when people say I'm a little OCD, they don't understand OCD. Yes, you can have like a less severe situation with OCD, but that's not what I was saying. But people misunderstand me. But this guy, I feel like that's kind of similar. When you experience grief, you know, then you have to learn how to handle that throughout your whole life when someone just suddenly dies or you're dealing with something like a big diagnosis or a health something, you know, like we have difficult times in our lives and those stay with you, but then how you interact with that and find slices of enjoyment are really important. So after the break, I'm going to talk about what that might look like for you. It looks different for each person and we'll just explore that together. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. It's time we put help directly in our kids' hands, introducing Crushing OCD Course for Kids and Teens. It was way more helpful than all the other therapy we've ever done because we didn't really know what to do. So we weren't really doing it before. So the course helped to figure out what the exposures are and how to do them. We're not in therapy and find it really hard um, to find an ERP trained therapist here. Um, So we're currently with like the public health service, but again, they don't seem to be trained in ERP. It's filled that gap that we don't have that was desperately needed. This was really well timed for us to use between therapists and to help us like start get off to a good start with this new practice. It was easy to use. Um, I was able to do it from my phone or also on the computer. There's different ages, you know, so there were younger kids, there were teenagers. And um, so that was really nice too to have a variety of ages where it wasn't just geared towards younger kids or older kids. It was a nice variety. It's helpful for our kids to hear it from this like third party as opposed to just us saying it. I really like the offense and defense method. I love working on poking at OCD while it's sleeping. It makes it a little bit easier to do and it's kind of fun. (laughs) I'm planning on using it to work on my uh, fear of like holding or touching batteries and stuff like that. So it was really helpful and I think a lot of other kids would like it. I thought that I was like the only one who had worrying about the weather and stuff. And then there was somebody else on there who worried about the same thing, which was really helpful. 
seems less scary to work on stuff now that I've watched this class and I'm more interested to work on it. I like trying to do more exposures still and going to, before I wasn't, I just didn't want to do them. I've worked on some of my bigger compulsions and been successful. I realized it was helpful to do like the exposures before it was like really, really hard. It's still hard, but it's helpful to know that I need to do them. Before there would be a lot of battles about it. So it is definitely less loggerheads. Really, really good course and super helpful. I definitely would recommend this. It's really easy to follow. It's in nice bite-sized videos. I really like the worksheets that go along with it, and I think it's really helpful. To learn more about this course and register your child or teen, go to atparentingsurvivalschool.com. All right, welcome back. So let's talk about what I mean by finding happiness. And I I think it, we should preface this with, oh, you know what? I forgot what I was actually going to say before break you know, my brain is not working today. I was going to say that, you know, how it's like fingers on the chalkboard for when you say, oh, we're so OCD. Well, fingers on the chalkboard for people with grief is to say, you'll get over it or this will pass. People, I like lost my train of thought in the middle of talking about that. And then I'd like try to pick it up. But then after the break, I was like, wait, I remember exactly what I was trying to say. I think I'm really tired today. (laughs) But yeah, that's like, There are taboo things to say, or there are things that people say that are not okay to the people that are experiencing them. And I find that in the anxiety and OCD world. And now I'm finding that in the grief world too. And one of them is that kind of like this will pass. Like there's like there's things that people say that it's well intentioned, but that actually are upsetting. And that is upsetting because similar to this journey with anxiety and OCD, grief is something that when it's not someone distant, but like when it's like literally like I think most most especially like a young spouse or a child, like when people die, it's never good that people die, obviously, but when they die in their prime or before they even got their life started, there's like a tragedy component to that. That's more disjointing, you know, like it's hard to move. It's, it's almost like before that happened and after that happened, it like, it's almost like it, it divides your life in half. And when you have something that monumental, whether it's a tragedy or a trauma or your child being diagnosed with anxiety or OCD. It's like it's like pre and post that moment. And that can feel that way for some people with anxiety and OCD. It didn't feel that way for me. Um, again, because one, I've been dealing with this my whole life. My, you know, mental health issues were in my family. So it just, it seems like just breathing the air. But I know for a lot of families, and maybe if they haven't had mental health issues in their family past, or they were really hoping their kids wouldn't, or they had like sudden onset especially with pandas and pans where it comes with rages, it can feel like pre and post. And that that moment they woke up and they had these symptoms overnight can be so overwhelming. But it is really important for us to continue to find slices of joy during really dark, difficult times. And that's important on a physiological level because when our body is bombarded with hopelessness, overwhelm, sadness, anxiety, and we don't give our body any reprieve, then our body can really, one, your immune system can get shot. So you can get sick a lot more often and run down. Two, you can actually kind of fall into a depression because those endorphins aren't kicking. There's nothing that's like fueling and lighting you up. 
that impacts you physiologically when those chemicals are not being released, those endorphins aren't being released, you can easily fall into your own depression. And I've had a lot of parents in the AT parenting community tell me over the last four years that we've been going, I think I need to see someone. I actually think I'm depressed or I'm so anxious. I feel like I just wake up in a panic. I hear these things a lot. And to me, and some people ha- didn't have mental health issues before. And, and that's for some people, I think it's because you're not finding, you think you're on a sprint and you're really on a marathon and you're not finding those moments of joy. And so what, what is she talking about with these moments of joy? <laughs> I know for me, and I'm going to talk more about grief just because that's what was hard for me to navigate because anxiety and OCD wasn't hard for me to navigate in general, except for my son and the feeding tube issue. But when you are in a really dark place where your child is just not doing well, and whatever that is for you, that definition of not well, is different for each person and that's okay. It can be hard to come up for air and it can be hard to think about anything else. It can be hard to want to find joy in anything because everything feels like it's crumbling. And I get that. And I know when like my world turned upside down overnight, I think just that startling, you know, like we go to bed and the world is great and you wake up and everything's upside down and you have to recreate everything, everything you thought you were going to have, everything you thought was going to be is now not happening for me, not happening will never happen for you. It might be, I thought my child was going to graduate with ease or make friends with ease or like whatever picture you had for your, your kids. It might be all of a sudden overnight, or it might've been a progression where it's just like everything I had hoped and dreamed of is not, not a guarantee. And maybe some of the things that are happening aren't like, so things are getting dropped already. They're not going to school easily, or they're like, you know, struggling with, with academics or, you know, they're not happy. They're just stuck in the room, but whatever it is for you, it's not what you pictured. And so it can be just this really overwhelming time because what you wanted and what is happening are two different things. And I know for me, when my husband passed away, you know, I had kids and I needed to go on. I couldn't hibernate. I couldn't, I didn't have any friends or family that lived here that were going to like, just take over my life. And I could just check out for a while. I didn't have that. And so early on, like within the week, we started to, and I think I've mentioned this before, if you listen to my episodes, but we started to watch Survivor every night. We just started to binge watch Survivor and it was one episode and we would all get together at 7 p.m. from wherever we were. We were like in this like weird foggy state because I stopped working. My kids stopped going to school. Like we were all just not doing anything because we were like in shock. And my kids, I don't think they went back to school for a month and I didn't go back to work for three months. And so it was just days and days in your pajamas, you know, people coming to the door and bringing flowers or something just for like the first couple of weeks. And then it was like just alone. And we just, to, to add the structure in our day, it was like 7 PM. We're going to watch Survivor and eat ice cream. And we started that within a few days, I think of him dying. And I have no idea why, but I started to look forward to that hour because we did it so that we all, we wanted to like be together and we were all kind of doing our own weird griefing thing. And it, I, I guess 
I don't even remember because I have no memory of the last two years, like maybe the last 18 months is starting to get clearer, but obviously the brain doesn't work. But I started to look forward to that moment. Like it was like a box of chocolate. Like I, it was, it was so good because it was one hour where I did not feel physical pain because I was actually feeling a lot of physical pain in my chest that really hurt like on a physical level. And so I didn't feel any physical pain and we were able to laugh and like root for somebody and get into someone else's drama. And for that hour, nothing that was going on in our world existed. It was the best escape. And that was a slice of joy. It was a slice of joy that I really started to look forward to because it was the one hour that I really felt like I got to breathe. And so I use that as an example, because when I'm talking about slices of joy, I'm talking about moments, moments that, that you, that you can soak up moments that recharge you. And I think sometimes we think big, we think of going to the spa or going out with girlfriends or, you know, whatever it might be. And I feel like it was smaller. I think it's a perspective of finding, finding the beauty. And this is going to maybe sound cheesy to some of you, but honestly, this is how I survived. It's like finding the beauty in the small things and getting excited for the small things and just living moment by moment was really helpful for me. And so I did some really I guess now that I look back on it, it was like kind of grounding stuff, but these are things that really helped me. And, and I'm going to just talk about them because maybe they'll help you too. They are different situations, but the, the emotion is, can be the same depending on where you're at. I mean, some of the parents I've been working with are like, they're shell-shocked. Their child has changed overnight or their child, even if it was of a slow progression, they're like really not doing well. And the family's in crisis. And when a family's in crisis for a long period of time, because sometimes it's a marathon, right? it impacts the health of the whole family emotionally and sometimes physically and so finding these moments of appreciation and and joy in like super simple things can be helpful and for for me it was grief you know grief kind of threw me that curveball where everything was upside down and for you it might be anxiety and ocd but we watched survivor for about i would say maybe 6 to 8 months and then we started to function better and so we were able to you could tell the health of the family was getting better when we forget to meet at seven. And I honestly don't even remember how long it went. Maybe it went on for a year. I don't remember. I think we kind of got through most of the seasons <laughs> because we were really watching them every day and binge watching them at some points because it felt good to not be here. Not that we want to always distract ourselves, but sometimes you need that reprieve to just be like, I'm doing nothing but soaking up this moment. The other thing that I did, some weird stuff, is I bought good smelling soap. So Bath and Body Work was having a sale and sometimes they have like really cheap soaps. You can buy them for like $4.50, like a thing. And so I bought like a crazy amount of them and I put them everywhere. And so when I would wash my hands, whether I was at like the kitchen sink or in the bathroom, my hands would smell really good. And it was like, I guess it was like a grounding thing. It was like, I could smell my hands and it smelled really good. And I started to buy candles and I got really into candles as well because there was something about just having a really good smell in the house that lifted my spirits and helped me. And so when I say find the joy, 
I'm talking microcosmic level of joy, <laughs> you know. But they're they're huge because when you start to see the joy in all these little moments of your life, one, it recharges you. Two, it models for your child the small things that we can do to improve our life. And then it does, it is a mood lifter where there's more hope. When I am really intentionally focusing on the small joys of my life in a day, because sometimes I have to consciously remind myself, oh, we're going to have a coffee today. We're just about to go get some coffee. We're going to make coffee. We're going to sit down and we're going to have it. Like sometimes when I narrate what I'm about to do, I get more excited about it. (laughs) I know that might sound weird to some of you, but when I'm just haphazardly doing it, like, oh, I'm tired. Let me just go make a cup of coffee. And then like, I'm doing the dishes and I have to go to work. And then I'm not, I'm not operating from intention. And I think it is important to accept your difficulties and not try to have that toxic positivity of like, rah, rah, I can't be upset. Mirror neurons. (laughs) I got to be happy. Let me think good thoughts. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. It's so important to honor your struggle. It's so important to take time out, to go cry if you need to, to vent to somebody, to just feel overwhelmed. Because when we try to you know, shove that in a box and not feel the feels, it will come out in other ways. And so, I mean, I, through my grief process, I would carve out time to sob in my closet it wasn't actually until recently that I stopped doing that. And now I'll do it periodically because my daughter has a really hard time with, we talked about that in my other episode on grief, so I won't go into it, but I had to learn how to accept my emotions and honor them because I wasn't used to strong emotions. I came from a really dysfunctional family where everybody else was on fire. And so it was my job to like not be on fire. And so when I was dealing with all these like difficult times, I had to train myself through a lot of therapy and grief support and coaching. Now at this point, I see someone who coaches me to learn how to honor the sad feelings and take time out to go and like have a good cry. I wasn't like, I didn't have good cries because I had learned from a very young age to stuff those things down. And so have your times where you honor this difficult moment, but equally have the times where you savor something in your day and find the things that that you savor. They're going to be different for you than they are for me. But when I start to have different things in my life, in my day, that bring me joy, moments of joy, I find that in general, my mood is lifted. Not that it has to be 100% perfect all the time, but I find the joy in things because this is my life and my journey. And your child is part of your journey for now, but they will go on and have their own journey. And you'll be an ancillary component to it always, but it's not your journey. You're not riding on that road and you can't, even if you want to, it's their road, it's their journey and you get yours. And I find that I am much better showing up for my kids. Ironically, since my husband died, because I'm so much more present because I had to be to survive. I had to find those little moments of happiness, little moments of happiness. And eventually I trained my brain to kind of almost do that naturally or to even crave it and to be like, oh, I need to really focus on what I'm doing in this moment right now. How do I want to have this moment right now? It doesn't mean that I don't lose my crap all the time because we're all human. But I find that the days where I'm really 
intentional and I'm finding those moments of contentment or moments of joy that I'm in a better space and I crave it. I crave it. Like I'll want to have another day like that or another moment like that. I'll give you a couple of other examples because they're all really tiny. Let me think of all the weird things that I do. We had gotten a bird feeder. (laughs) This is kind of stupid, but we got a bird feeder and we noticed that there were these house finches. I looked them up because I'm like, what kind of birds are those? They're like little birds that started to make a nest in on my patio. And they're really tiny. And then they had little babies. And so we got my daughter and I got a bird feeder and we became like a bird atrium recently. And they're just a zillion birds. It got too much because apparently birds are nasty to each other and they're territorial just like us humans. Um, and they were making a mess on my patio. But <laughs> That was not the joy moment. The joy moment was like, this is so beautiful. And I'd go out and for like even five minutes, just go and like have some coffee and go watch the birds. Or even if like I was just sitting in my living room working because I work on my iPad to do all this craziness, I could see from my window, I could see the birds. And so just taking 10 minutes and just watching the birds was a moment of contentment a purposeful moment of contentment. Sometimes they just happen naturally, but these moments of contentment are really helpful. And so what would that look like for you? You know, finding these slices of joy. What are slices of joy for you? On a food level, I love mochis. (laughs) I don't know why. It actually started with Survivor because when we were watching Survivor, we started to have mochis. I have no idea why. So do you know what mochis are? They're like, little ice cream circles, but they're like, they are surrounded by like a, like a race type of substance. Anyway, I like them because they're really tiny. So I don't feel really bad about eating a huge bowl of ice cream and, um, you can hold them and they're easy to get, you know, like you don't have to put a cone or a bowl. It's just like you grab a little mochi. And so we started that, I think when my husband died and we were watching survivor, we're having mochis every night. No idea why, but that has continued two and a half years later. I'll be like, I'm going to go get a mochi, you know, and I'm going to just sit here in this chair and eat my mochi because how often do you like do things that are enjoyable, but you don't take the time to actually do it independent of anything else. And I know a lot of us are very busy and it just seems like I can't carve out time to just sit there and eat a mochi. (laughs) What the heck's a mochi anyway? (laughs) But you know, sometimes it's like, really, you don't have Three minutes, I can eat one in two minutes to sit there and not look at your phone, not look at your iPad, you know, not do the laundry or not do work or whatever it is that you do and just eat that little whatever. You know, sometimes for me, it's dark chocolate balls. (laughs) The dark chocolate ball cranberries, those are my other mochi version. They're not mochis, but that's my other indulgence, you know, and dark chocolate's good for you. So it's important that I get that in in my day. But I will take a little cup of like a couple of dark chocolate cranberry balls. I forgot that Brookstone, I think. I don't remember the whatever they're called. And I might sit there and really savor them. And and that's enjoyable for me. And sometimes I'll be doing something that's enjoyable, but I'll be checking my email or checking my phone or doing something. And I'll say, put it down. Just just taste this and enjoy this moment. A moment, a, a moment of contentment a moment of joy. And so sometimes I'll be trying to talk to my child while checking my email or while like writing like a podcast show notes or something. 
and maybe they're saying something funny or they're trying to tell me a story. And it's something I think I would, I would enjoy, but I'm like multitasking and I'll say, put it all down and like, just soak up this moment of contentment, right? It's another moment of joy. It's like, oh, she's being really hysterical right now. She just said something super funny. My daughter, <laughs> I don't know if she'd appreciate me sharing this story. She's so funny. And she says really funny things. And you know, you can miss them if I'm just like spinning off in my world. And your kids with anxiety and OCD, they have other beautiful things about them other than their struggles. And are we soaking those up? Those are moments of joy too. They don't have to be only about you, separate from your kids. She's very funny. She's got this new thing where she will she'll fart and then she'll go, I'm lactose intolerant. And I'm like, I was like, and like after like the fourth time she said that in the last two days, because she says it like deadpan in such a funny voice. And I'm like, did you see that? Is that a meme? Because she is lactose intolerant, like severely lactose intolerant. She goes, no, just mentioning, just letting people know. And she's just so funny. But I can miss those things. And when our kids aren't doing well, it's very easy not to see those things, those moments of joy, not moments that you think should be joyful, because I think that is different. Sometimes in the past, especially, I would think I should enjoy something. Like when my 19-year-old was little, she'd want to play on the floor and play games or whatever, or actually when all three of my kids were little. And I never enjoyed playing board games or like getting on the floor and playing with my kids. And I think, I don't know if that's just who I am or if it was because I'm a therapist, like a child therapist. So I play with kids all day. And so like, I didn't really want to play with my kids, which sounds horrible, but I never enjoyed that. And there was a a parent pressure, like a mom pressure of, I need to do this and I need to enjoy it because this is what parents do and they enjoy it. And you should soak up these moments because they're not going to be here forever. And you know, you're wasting it. But I think that that's the wrong attitude. I think it's like, it's okay to acknowledge, like, I don't really enjoy getting on the floor and playing with my kids but I do enjoy a really good juicy conversation with them. You know, and now that they're older, like I really love that. I love getting into like some deep philosophical conversation and we're just we don't even realize that an hour has gone by because we're like so deep into this conversation. I realize now or I have realized that I I do enjoy my kids being older. I was never one to really love babies, ironically. I love babies, they're super cute and I love being a grandma if I ever am one, but I think I was an older parent. I had my youngest when I was 40. And so I think I just didn't have the energy. My point is that find the moments that really create joy for you, not the moments that you feel like society says should be joyful. And so they may not be about your child being funny, or they may not be about your child at all. Um, They might be like your partner is saying something that's funny, or your partner um, is giving you a back scratch or something that's enjoyable. And maybe you just put everything down and you just really focus on that for a moment. But I'm hoping that that this episode just inspires you to think, what, what would be my slices of joy? You know, what would those look like? Because they're different for each person. When I, I'm trying to think of other slices of joy I have, because a lot of times it is, even in the middle of the day, because I work from home, when I'm eating now, for a while, I would just focus on my food. But sometimes that's kind of boring for me. But sometimes in the middle of the day, when I'm eating, I will watch one of my favorite TV shows only while I'm eating because I'm very disciplined. I'm so disciplined that I would never normally allow myself to do anything in the middle of my work day, even though I work from home. And part of me finding a slice of joy is giving me a little wiggle room. Like, you know what? It's like guilty pleasure. You're eating. And so you can watch one of your favorite shows while you're eating. Now that may not be a big deal to you, um, or it might be, but your, your contentment and your 
slices of joy will look different than mine. But my hope is that I'm just inspiring you to say, okay, maybe I'm going to focus on that. Or maybe I'm just going to ask myself periodically, what was your slice of joy today? No pressure. (laughs) None of this should be pressure. You know, like, okay, let me put that on my to-do list of like, did you have find a slice of joy today? Did you consume a slice of joy? Nothing should be pressure. But it's a it might be a great like little mantra or something. Like, what was your slice of joy today? Or do you feel like a slice of joy right now? (laughs) That sounds so stupid. But honestly, it does, it does improve the darkness. It's a little light in the darkness when life is way, way too heavy. And sometimes life will be so heavy. And in those times, a little lightness can light up a whole room. You know, you think about that, a little spark, a little match, the whole corner of the room is lit. It's the same thing with a little bit of slice of joy, something that, that makes everything a little bit more palatable during this rough time. So some things to think about. I hope that you found it helpful. If you're enjoying my podcast in general, don't forget to rate it uh, wherever you consume your podcast. I always appreciate that. If you have a few extra seconds, you can write a review and I'll read one. I haven't gotten one in a little while, so I don't have any new to read, but maybe I'll be reading yours next time. So I do hope that you find the sparkle in everything you do. Somebody had asked in the AT parenting community, why does she say that? (laughs) Why does she say, I hope you find the sparkle in everything you do? Well, you know what? This whole episode answers that question. A sparkle is a slice of joy. And if we can find something that just lights us up, not big, right? Me washing my hands with like some really good smelling soap, slice of joy. Me eating some dark chocolate, slice of joy. Watching a favorite TV show, slice of joy. Doesn't have to be big, but that's finding the sparkle in everything you do. Finding something. When I'm doing laundry, I always listen to a podcast, not a podcast. I always listen to an audiobook. I consume audiobooks like they're going out of style, but I only let myself listen to them when I am doing the laundry or the dishes. And so I love doing the laundry. I love doing the dishes because one, I like the warm water on my hands when I'm doing the dishes, but I love listening to my audiobooks. Slice of joy. So that's the sparkle. So you go find the sparkle in everything you do. And I'll talk to you again on next Tuesday. Take care. Bye. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 